Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. In a dance speaking with Carlos Savasco, the author of the article, This Is My Body, Community and Cannibalism in Colonial New England and New France, which is published in Volume 89, Issue 4 of the New England Quarterly. Carlos Savasco is completing her doctorate in the Program in American Studies at Harvard University. As a historian of food, medicine, and material culture in early America, she's writing a history of hunger in the borderlands of colonial New England and New France. Carla Savasco, thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you. Is it fair to say that your article, uh, This Is My Body, Community and Cannibalism in Colonial New England and New France, focuses primarily on how three groups, we'll say settlers in New England, the settlers in New France, and some of the Native American tribes in the area, both understood their own rituals about community and cannibalism and then misunderstood the others? So, so just by way of context, a lot of people, when they think of war in the colonial period in American history, they think about the American Revolution. But actually, there's a great deal more war in the century and a half leading up to the revolution, especially in the area that is now New England and southeastern Canada, which is where my article takes place. So first of all, English and French settlers are invading native homelands. And Native people are fighting back against colonization in a variety of ways. They're negotiating, they're making alliances with each other and with these different empires, and they're also making war. And then secondly, the English and the French empires are also fighting each other during this period. The English and French are fighting kind of on two fronts. They're each trying to claim North America for themselves, again, trying to seize this land from Native Americans. And they're fighting each other back in Europe as well. This is a really violent period in European history, too. So what all this means is that from the beginnings of English and French colonization at the start of the 17th century to the end of the revolution, the northern part of North America is basically always at war, always in the midst of violence. And the war against native peoples continues much longer, of course. So the historical record tells us about a lot of really shocking brutality in this period. Um, and we don't even know about everything that happened because the record is incomplete. So there's a lot of violence that happens that we don't even necessarily know about. So I wanted to offer this context to my discussion of communion and cannibalism because people who were at war with each other in this way are not necessarily in the best position to try to understand each other's cultures and try to understand each other, right? So, so my article examines all of these conflicts by looking at a series of rituals that English, French, and some native cultures shared with each other. I call these rituals rituals of communion, which I define as the ritualistic consumption of the human body as an expression of community. And this is wartime, so, so it's very important for communities to define who is in the community and who is outside the community. It's really about us versus them. So it's no coincidence that people are using these rituals, which involve blood and body parts, in the midst of wartime, in the midst of this really violent period in history. The human body that gets consumed in these rituals may be real or it may be more metaphorical, which is something that I'll discuss more in a minute. But I was drawn to study the commonalities between these rituals, both because of similarities in the ways that people from different cultures described these rituals, but also because people were using objects in very similar ways in these rituals. So in the article, I'm talking about three specific objects, a silver and gilt ciborium, which was used in the Catholic mass in Quebec in the 18th century, 
a silver two-handled cup, which was used in the Puritan communion service, also in the 18th century, and a reproduction of a copper kettle that would have been used in two ceremonies in two different native nations, a Mi'kmaq burial ceremony and a Wendat ritual cannibalism ceremony, and both of those were described in the 17th century. And these objects became interesting to me because of the commonalities between them. They were all made out of precious metals, metals that were precious to the people who used them, silver, gold, or copper. They were all used in the midst of these tremendously important ceremonies of life and death. And they were all used specifically to contain either real or metaphorical human bodies or body parts. So for Catholics, their ritual of communion is the mass. A priest transubstantiates, uh, and more on that in a moment, transubstantiates wafers in a vessel called a ciborium, and then communicants consume these wafers. For Protestants, their ritual of communion takes place when worshipers um, share wine that has been blessed by a minister during a worship service. And then there are two other rituals that I'm referring to in, as communion as well. There's a Mi'kmaq ritual in which human remains are buried in a kettle and a Wendat ritual in which prisoners of war were ritualistically tortured, executed, and then eaten by a community. So I want to be very clear that there are no historical accounts of ritual cannibalism among Mi'kmaq people, but they did use these copper kettles to bury their dead, which is another ritual of life and death and community, and it's taking place using a cooking vessel. Um, and meanwhile, ritual cannibalism is pretty well documented among Wendat people at this point in history. So I think it's no coincidence that all of these communities are practicing rituals that involve blood and body parts in the midst of, as I was saying at the beginning, a very bloody time, a time of constant violence. And I argue that by symbolically or literally destroying the human body, Communion was a really violent way to show community belonging in the midst of conflict. So is it better? And I, I would think it's because we're so used to thinking of, let's say, New England as a specific geographic area and what was Quebec and the Maritimes as a specific area to take ourselves back to that. The whole idea of colonies was a very this land, I guess, scratch all the geographic lines that we have on there. It was just basically a big hunk of land that you had three groups of people try. They were in kind of constant warfare with one another trying to decide who was going to run it. It just how happened that all three of these groups, British settlers that were basically New England, French settlers who are New France, and then the Native Americans are already there, all had these variations on a theme of how that they would use a ritual communion to say, you're inside of our group, therefore we'll protect you. You're outside of our group, therefore you're a threat. Is that another way to say it? Right, definitely. And and thinking about this geography, the the term that historians use a lot is borderlands. So instead of thinking about boundary lines or borders being drawn between places, we should think about the fact that all of these people are mixing together under these really turbulent circumstances at this point. And for those talking about the, we were talking about the wars before the Revolutionary War. I mean, these were these were the wars, at least in American history, actually led up to the Revolutionary War and gave the colonists a sense that they could, we could run our own show. Why do we have the British here? So we're setting the stage for what would eventually be the revolution. Right, right. And you can argue that the revolution is also yet another borderlands war because it involves the same, basically the same players, right? You have native people, you have the English colonists, obviously, and then also the French involved, although now the English and the French are on the same side in the revolution. But I really see it as a continuation of a lot of the conflict that happened before. So in your first answer, you talked a little bit about transubstantiation and how that issue, that doctrine within the Catholic Church, 
was a a big issue between the English or maybe not so much a big issue, but a point of contention between the English and the French settlers. For those of us who are not raised Catholic and maybe do not know what transubstantiation is, can you explain the doctrine of transubstantiation and why it would be so controversial for English settlers? Sure. So in this time period in the 17th and the 18th centuries, we're right in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. So to put it mildly, religion is a pretty hot topic in Europe at this moment in time. So part of this big debate between Protestants and Catholics comes down to the way that you interpret Christ's words in 1 Corinthians verses 24 and 25. This is my body. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. So Catholics more or less interpret this statement literally. And so in the Mass, a priest consecrates sacramental wafers in wine and transubstantiates or transforms them into Christ's actual flesh and blood, which still maintains the appearance of being wafers and wine. So transubstantiation is a miracle, and Protestants just don't believe in this miracle. Protestants instead interpret Christ's words in this passage as a metaphor. So when they consume communion bread and wine, they see themselves as, yes, participating in an important and holy ritual, but this ritual only symbolizes Christ's body and blood to them. It's not the actual substance to them. This is a really fundamental religious disagreement, which stokes a lot of conflict between Protestants and Catholics, and it gets pretty ugly. Um, Protestants take a lot of issue with transubstantiation. They argue that the Mass basically crucifies Christ over and over again. They see it as this very violent ritual. Um, and Cotton Mather, who is a who is a Puritan minister, a Protestant minister in New England, argues that transubstantiation is cannibalism. Um, and in fact, he says that Catholics are so much worse than cannibals. So here again is this us versus them rhetoric. Protestants and Catholics disagreed over what kind of body they were consuming, whether it was Christ's actual body or a metaphorical body. And this served as a way of marking members of their own communities and, again, excluding outsiders. So can we go back to that question of the material history you talked about? Does, is that question of transubstantiation and what actually is going on, how does that play over to who can actually touch the vessel? So, so Protestants and Catholics uh, have a lot of disagree religious disagreements at this moment in history. But so each group has a very specific definition of who gets to participate in communion. So for Protestants in New England at this point in history, um, there are pretty strict rules about who can take communion. You have to have made an admission of, th an admission of faith. You have to have publicly uh, described a conversion experience, and then you can become a full member of, of this religious community and take communion. And they start relaxing those rules a little bit in something called the halfway covenant. But really for Protestants, they're very, very um, strict about who can take communion. And there's a lot of requirements for being a full member of, of Puritan church. For Catholics, the, the and also Protestants only take communion a couple times a year, like three or four times a year maximum, because they were really trying to distance themselves from the Catholic calendar of, of, um, of ritual, which is something like 300 days of the year are a feast or a fast or some other religious occasion for Catholics. So Protestants are really trying to simplify the Catholic calendar and distance themselves from that. For Catholics, uh, communionism is much more available to people. Um, you have to have uh, made confession and fasted the night before, um, but you can take communion as many times as you want. 
Um, and in fact, in the in the medieval period, there's um, saints who are said to have lived only on communion wafers alone, uh, partly because they took communion so often, often, but also because they were saints. And so there were miraculous things happening to them. But so um, so there's there are big differences in who gets to be included at the communion table. For Protestants, it's a very, very specific select group of people. And for Catholics, it's a much um, larger group of people. At the same time, though, there's there's sort of an opposite current in who gets to touch these these precious metal vessels that are being used in communion. For Protestants, once you are a member of, of the church, everyone is equal. Everyone gets to participate in communion. Um, they call it the priesthood of all believers. And so while the minister, um, you know, says prayers over the wine, um, the wine gets passed around from hand to hand throughout the throughout the meeting house. And so everyone is is um, taking the cup and and handing it to the next person down the pew and taking a drink. Um, and so the communion cup that I'm talking about, the reason it has two handles is because it's much easier to hand something to somebody else when you each have a handle to hold on to. For Catholics, the the center of religious authority really rests with the priest. And so that's reflected in the material culture of the ciborium. The priest blesses these sacramental wafers within the ciborium. He transubstantiates them. And the ciborium is really kind of a challenging object to handle. It's It's um, got all these knobs on it. It's got a lid. It's kind of awkward. And so it wouldn't be something that you would want to be handing from person to person throughout a big room. So the priest is the only person who gets to touch the ciborium to take out the wafers and place them on the tongue of kneeling communicants. So for Protestants, they see themselves as actually, despite having very strict uh, requirements for communion, they see themselves as create as um, having a community of, of equals and everyone is sort of a, a, a religious equal within their communities. Whereas Catholics are, are placing a lot of authority in the priest who is the person who is actually um, causing the miracle, who is actually um, making transubstantiation happen. So those are the French and English settlers. Let's talk about the Native Americans who are already in the area. Now you talked about, uh, in, in your article, you talk about two tribes, you focus on two tribes in particular, the Wendat and the Mi'kmaq. Um, the Mi'kmaqs, you say, practiced a, uh, to the Greek community, was very symbolic. The Wendats didn't. Now, to the degree that of the, neither one of these tribes had any sort of, there was no Christian doctrine, what was the purpose of communion, or I guess the ritual serving, or perhaps the Wendats case, not so much ritual serving of of the body? What did it do? So I want to start off by reemphasizing that there's no documented ritual cannibalism by Mi'kmaq people, but there is pretty consistent documentation on ritual cannibalism among Wendat people. So, so let's talk about the Mi'kmaq burial service. Um, so I want to say that many aspects of native burial ceremonies are very mysterious to historians. And, and there's a reason for that, a good reason for that. These are sacred rituals about which outsiders are not supposed to know. So talking about the material culture of, of Mi'kmaq burial, um, Mi'kmaq people buried their dead in copper kettles um, in the fetal position. Now, over the course of American history, Euro-Americans have really violated sacred native rituals uh, by doing things like digging up or even destroying native burial grounds and artifacts. So there's NAGPRA, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, uh, which is a piece of legislation that is designed to protect native artifacts and rituals, and it's made this kind of violation illegal. But back in the 19th century, people didn't have these kinds of, of ethics or um, understandings of other cultures. And so they were in the interest of in the interest of learning more about Native people, they were going and disturbing these grave sites, which is now totally illegal. So so there are kettles that were stolen from grave sites 
that have made their way into museums. And that's basically how we know about these rituals. So the kettle I'm discussing is actually a reproduction of one of these kettles. It was made, uh, modeled off of a kettle that was buried in a gravesite in the 17th century and dug up by Euro-Americans in the 19th century. And so in the 20th century, people made a reproduction of this kettle because they wanted to be able to have these conversations and show this object in museums, but they also want to be respectful to native people and not show these objects that were meant to remain buried and not seen by anyone. So there are things that a non-native historian like me is not meant to know, and I want to respect that in my scholarship as well. But from what we can tell about this, this burial practice, the reason that there are these French copper kettles in, in native hands in the first place is because French settlers bring them with them to trade with native people. And they expect that native people will, you know, cook food in these kettles. And indeed, native people do use these kettles for that purpose, but they also start to integrate them into their ritual practices in some really interesting ways. So one of the one of the um, ritual practices in burial is burying objects, grave goods, with the deceased person. Um, and these objects are meant to accompany this person in their journey to the afterlife, which is pretty much just like... Um, life in in the living world and you still need to be able to cook your food and um, do other things in the spirit world so you need stuff to bring with you to to sort of equip you in the spirit world but bur burial is the process of releasing uh, a person from from this life into the afterlife so there's something about the the kettle which enables a transformation of the body it trans it enables a person to transform from this world into an afterlife and so, and so cooking is an act of transformation, right? And so that was what really drew me to, to this ritual is the idea that the kettle is trans, still transforming the body in some way, uh, in a different way than it transforms the, the body in the Wendat ritual. So that was just talking a bit about the challenges of the material culture of, of talking about these rituals. But the sources about Wendat rituals present their own challenges. Because when we're talking about Native people in this period, the written sources in the archive are almost all written by Europeans. Remember, these are the people who are invading Native homelands. So, so settlers have an ulterior motive here, and we can't necessarily assume that they, are, um, that they are accurate sources. But there is a lot of consistency in how written sources describe ritual cannibalism among Wendat people. Basically, prisoners of war from, from other nations uh, were were captured, they were ritualistically tortured, executed, and then parts of their bodies were cooked in this copper kettle and then eaten by members of the community. There are similarities here between communion and this uh, this other ritual, this ritual of cannibalism, because they're both rituals that involve um, preparing human bodies in some way and then consuming them as a community, whether you're doing that on the more metaphorical level or in this case on the actual physical level of consuming bodies. And throughout, there's there's an emphasis on vessels that transform the human body. Um, and that's why I'm calling all these rituals communion because they're all rituals of consuming human bodies together as an expression of community. And they're all using similar material culture to do that. Um, and, but of course, given that these rituals, whether it's Protestant and Catholic communion or Wendat ritual, all involve consuming real or metaphorical human bodies, they're also implicitly or explicitly cannibalistic as well. So finally, was there a way in which I want to say these questions of less communion or, or perhaps the way the communion was represented to others used as a degree of social control, as in, you know, if you go beyond this or you go past this settler thing, 
the cannibals are out there and therefore they're not really human. We can treat them however we want to or stay within this area. Otherwise, you're going to die being eaten by these people. Right, definitely. The rhetoric of cannibalism turns out to be really effective for dehumanizing your enemies. So everyone in this period, which is again very violent, they're all calling each other cannibals. So native nations called each other cannibals. Uh, the name Mohawk actually comes from an Abenaki word for cannibal. So, so English settlers showed up and asked the Abenakis, what is the name of the people who live immediately to your west? And the Abenakis said, oh, those are the cannibal people, Mohawks. So that name stuck. Um, settlers also called each other cannibals, especially going back to the British versus the French, uh, Protestants versus Catholics debate I was referencing earlier. I already mentioned Cotton Mather, New England Puritan minister calling Catholics so much worse than cannibals because of the doctrine of transubstantiation. Another Puritan minister, Edward Taylor, described eating human flesh and blood as barbarousness. Um, but perhaps the most important rhetoric around cannibalism attaches itself to native people, settlers accusing native people of cannibalism. And this would turn out to have huge consequences for native people in, in terms of colonization. The word cannibal actually originates with the first Spanish colonizers of the Caribbean. So there's a really long history of connections between colonizing the quote unquote new world and accusing indigenous people of cannibalism. So the French Jesuit missionaries in New France, who were describing uh, Wendat and other native peoples' ritual cannibalism, called it inhuman and cruel. And these missionaries expressed the hope that when native people converted to Christianity, they would give up their traditional religious practices, uh, which missionaries again called barbarous. Um, for settlers, native ritual cannibalism became another rationalization for colonization. There was this idea that native people needed white people to save them from their savagery. And of course, we know this isn't true, but this was the justification that settlers gave for taking native lands and trying to destroy native traditions. So for me, the question is, why did natives and settlers tend to see cannibalism everywhere else but amongst themselves? And again, this goes back to the context of the brutal warfare of the time, um, 150 years of war. The irony is that communion rituals were meant to reinforce community belonging and to bring people together. But in this period, they were also getting used as a way to divide people, defining who is within the community and who is outside the community. And therefore, that uh, whoever is outside the community is is it's okay to commit violence against those people. And these rituals all again involve some level of implicit or explicit violence towards the human body, eating flesh, drinking blood. In a way, there's there's uh, definitely cannibalism rhetoric that gets attached to war. Um, um, there's one Onondaga leader saying during a peace conference to settlers that you have almost eat us up. Right. So that so that um, war and violence get seen as a form of cannibalism in this period as well. Carlos Savasco, the author of This Is My Body, Community and Cannibalism in Colonial New England and New France. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you so much. For information about the New England Quarterly and other journals the MIT Press publishes, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org. Don't forget the MIT Press is on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2018, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.